There we go. So hello, my name is Theo Blackmore from Disability Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly. And today I'm talking to... Joyce Kalavik. Um, and I'm the director of WISH, um, a user-led women's mental health organisation. In fact, the only one in um, a national organisation in, in covering England and Wales. And so that's interesting. So you're a national organisation? Yeah. Yeah, um, although some of our services are localised, where uh, the remit is as a national organisation, well, especially in relation to campaigning um, and and influence, yeah. And so uh, where are you based? Where's your premises? We're based in Bethnal Green in okay. East London. Um, and we've got... We've got three offices there. We've got our, you know, the hub of driving wish forward office. Uh, we've got a community link office and we've got uh, counselling rooms as well. Uh, we, we provide trauma informed um, counselling for women. Um, so just the name of your organisation, WISH, was it, did it used to be an acronym or has it always just been WISH? No, it did used to be an acronym. Um, a wish started in 1987 and it was um, set up by um, Bruce Stevenson, Terry Simpson and Kimberly Andrews. Um, so Kim was working in the education department at Holloway. Um, sorry, Prue was working at the, in the education department and then they got together with former patients at Rampton Hospital, High Secure Hospital. Um, there was a lot of concern because of the mental health of women in Holloway um, and then the link with Rampton so you know the group formed Wish Women in Secure Hospitals which is now not obviously that's not representative of the work we do but we obviously we still do work in um, uh, forensic units in secure hospitals. And so I saw because I had a quick look at your website and I saw that you work uh, particularly with women who have experienced uh, the prison system. So I saw that, so when you say Holloway, are you referring there to the Holloway? Yes, Holloway prison. It's now closed and there's a big uh, movement to make it a community space for women. That's been an ongoing challenge, I think. Oh, wow. Well, I didn't um, know Holloway closed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did it close? Oh, gosh. Six years ago, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, mental health is not properly addressed in prison at all. And it's only those with, you know, serious mental illness who grab the attention. Um, I think it's 78% of women in prison um, have experienced mental health issues. Um, so it's big. Yeah, it's a massive issue, isn't it? I mean, mental health services have just been decimated across the country and, you know, social services, they have four criteria of groups of people they work with, people over 65, people with physical impairments, people with learning difficulties and people with mental health issues. And the mental health issues have just been so massively underfunded. I think that lots of social services departments, in fact, don't do any funding at all anymore or any services. No, it's very hard to get... Um to access social services. And of course, it was difficult before uh, COVID 
but since COVID, well, all health and social services are in tatters. Um, and, you know, in a way, we and other charities are providing the services that should be provided through social services. And now, of course, because of the cost of living crisis impacting severely on the women, well, everyone who's, you know, sort of low income groups and disabled people, the whole range of people, the cost of living crisis has meant that, you know, women are at their absolute wit's end about how to survive. We're just about to do a blog, actually, on the cost of living crisis. And I've just been reading it. And um, one, a child of one of the women said that she's afraid they're going to be homeless. Housing, finances, food, all those basic things that shouldn't really be, you know, should be provided in a wealthy society, you know, just not available to a large portion of people and there's a there was um there's a report just come out by um it's i think it's called no child left behind um and that states that a third of children are living in poverty in this country Crazy. you know and we, women are seen as the primary caregivers obviously and so when you know if you watch on the news then it's very often a woman who's being interviewed with a small child and they go to food banks you know, something, yeah. I think 60% of people who use food banks, the Trust or Trust said, or maybe even more, are pe disabled people. And that obviously includes women, women with mental health issues. So there's just a huge number of women taking on an incredible amount of responsibility. Yeah, and, you know, without wanting to generalise, it's usually women who pick up the pieces of what's happening, happening you know, um, economically, in the house, with children. So it's that in itself is a huge pressure which impacts on mental health. Um, yeah, and what we found actually, and we're having a meeting about this, it's all happening tomorrow, we're having a meeting about it. Um, sorry. Um, uh, we're having, yeah, we're having a meeting about it, is that the women are referral self-referral and referral rates are absolutely going through the sky i mean wish has got a history of working with women um in you know in the prison system criminal uh, the your hospital system women with you know severe mental illness and disadvantage who've experienced a whole range of trauma childhood abuse and you know uh, as part of their coping mechanism have turned to drugs and alcohol, it's health injured. So those women, you know, who actually need the most support and are often turned away by uh, services because they seen as too challenging. But now we're getting referrals and self-referrals from everyone and every, anyone, you know, just, I, you know, I'm in desperate need of support and we've got to, you know, it's very hard to turn people away but at the same time we you know we're absolutely over capacity and under resourced um and we're just looking at trying to develop a strategy for you know enabling some support without becoming completely overwhelmed and of course we've got to think of our staff who absolutely work you know <laughs> above and beyond and you know sort of we've got to think about their 
um, mental health and their well-being as well. So yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah, it must be very difficult to, you know, dealing with the people that you're dealing with and the workload you're dealing with to leave work at work and go home in the evening without without it just taking over your life in many ways. You've got to be really careful, I guess, as a team. Yeah, yeah, we have. I mean, we're actually just realising now, I mean, we we put mechanisms in place during COVID because staff were working at home. You know, there were, you know, it, it was dire for women who... Many said lockdown felt like being locked up again. So it was very re-traumatizing, you know, they were socially isolated, anxiety and depression. They didn't know what was happening. None of us knew what was happening with COVID and the lockdown rules changing. Um, so we put a strategy in place to ensure um, that we could support our staff regular, you know, long weekly meetings with, you know, sort of guidance and support. And I think we're, we're just realising now we've got to, we, we have to do that again because, you know, sort of, um, yeah, capacity is completely, uh, well, too much, you know, limited and, and, and the work is just too much. You know, I've been having these conversations with disabled people's organisations across the country now for, for only a short while, relatively, but the same people's organizations across the country are all experiencing the same sorts of issues which is under capacity underfunding you know huge demand on services especially since covid but also during covid so you did you see a spike in your services during covid that that bring more people to your to your doors as it were um i think to a certain extent but the people we were already working with needed more support as well and I think you know because of COVID and you know IT issues access to that it was it it did bring a bit of a surge but also it meant that the you know the work the, the women we were working with we had to work with more intensively um yeah yeah I'm very sorry, I was just writing things down because there's things I want to remember to ask about. But so it's, you know, during COVID, things were very difficult. So we noticed that lots of disabled people's organisations changed the way that they worked. So instead of being very reactive and waiting for phone calls to come in, they became very proactive and started phoning out, make sure that the people that they knew and the people they were in contact with had everything they needed, were able to access food, could access the medicine they needed, but also just had human contact because a lot of people will found themselves on their own in their homes without any visitors or anything happening or, or just nobody coming into their lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we did. And what we also did, I think we sent two or three um, parcels to women of lovely things like tea or, you know, sort of essences and um and amethyst, little amethyst crystals things that were like you know there to give to bring some joy really and um honestly the response we got was absolutely incredible you know for what must have cost a tenner probably per person you know it was it was like you know sort of really heartwarming to see how so little can bring so much joy to women and how much they appreciate them. The notes we got were incredible, you know. Uh, yeah. 
And so as an organization, your, your organization is entirely staffed and run by women. Yeah. Uh, and you, you say that you're entirely a user-led service. So I guess that a number of those women have themselves been through the prison system or the mental health system and have personal experience of that. So yeah. you can bring that to their relationships with the people who come to you. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you know, that peer... Well, our our, um, our services are built on relational security and trust. And, you know, that's something that women really value. But also there's a recognition. It's, you know, it's unspoken, isn't it? You, if you're, you know where people are coming from, then there's a whole different response to how you work with them and how you support them. Um, yeah, I, I've been an advocate, an empath, in a forensic unit. And actually, it was the best. The, although forensic units are not the best at all, and not in any way, I would say, a good way for women to heal or to, well, recover or, you know, come to terms or whatever with what's happened to them. But So what, what is a forensic unit? It's, um, well, it's a secure unit. It's a unit where people are detained under the Mental Health Act. Um, and there's, you know, there's often a, a criminal, a criminal element to their detention, which, you know, can be minor or major. Um, but when I used to go on the wards, because we're, we were a, react, uh, a proactive service, we didn't wait for people to ring up and say, well, I've got an issue. Um, you know, we'd go on the wards every week, we'd build relationships, we'd play games, we'd do things that they related to. So they felt... Um, confident in our um, ability to support them and trusted us because a lot of women that we work with are very large support and have experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse and therefore you know uh, developing trust in relationships is not necessarily something that's easy to do. Um, so yeah and, and it was the best part of my job because you could just even though I mean I'm a back of house sort of person really you know as director you're there at the strategy level and trying to make things happen make sure the business strategy is being followed fundraising um but being on the front line and seeing you know firsthand the impact that um wish could bring uh, to women's lives was you know absolutely amazing and definitely the best part of my job ever at wish and so as an organisation then, so what do, you, what do you do? Do you go visiting people in insecure units, I guess, in London and around the country or just? Well, we have, um, <clears throat> we've got three services. One is um, we've been working in prisons and that is uh, just around supporting women. Uh, the other is we've got, uh, and that's, um, that's not paid because everything comes under the, you know, the MOJ funding umbrellas which really don't fit our sort of service at all you know it's one bam um the moj the ministry of justice yeah yeah they've got um various funding strands partnerships and you know really they're not really the sort of thing that we do um but we've got some advocacy contracts in um women's units um we used to have a lot but of course we're a bit more expensive because we have a different approach and also um 
obviously women in the minority in both your hospitals and in prison. So um, we we want um, it's very competitive, and the hospitals want one organisation to deliver both services to men and women. So we find you know that's quite difficult to compete. But we're just reviewing our advocacy service with we've reviewed all our services actually um since covid um you know the counseling community link um so we're just we're just about to start to review advocacy to look at our unique selling points to try and assess impact so that we can market um the, the you know the service to a wider range of hospitals you know it's interesting so one thing you said Lots of things you said, but one of the things you said was that women are under women are the are the minority in prisons and in mental health institutions, but women are the majority of the population. Mm-mm. So that, that's kind of is that what what's going on there then? How come? Um, well, I suppose I mean looking at the statistics for women and you know criminal offences, majority of women commit very minor offence. They can be, you know, they can be put in prison for walking close to the road and endangering themselves and others. It's like absolutely, or, you know, shoplifting to buy drugs for them or, or, or you know, whoever is courting them. Often. And, and, many of the cri- and many of the crimes women um, commit are um, on behalf of the men they're with. Um, and so, yeah, and women commit less crime, basically. Um, and although, and also, the travesty is that system is made by men for men, and so women's needs are not as um, profiled. Uh, although there was a women's mental health strategy at the beginning of the twenties. Um, 2002 into the mainstream you know it was a lot of rhetoric really there was no funding behind it and some things did change like mixed wards which obviously is a very important one but there are still mixed wards Um, women want relational security um, and environmental security not physical security which is you know what is more applicable to men they get second place they did get second place in you know, education and workshops, it would always be, you know, men's needs would be met first. Yeah. Amazing. You know, when I was I was talking to somebody, I remember, so the project that I've recently completed with Disability Cornwall was funded from the National Lottery. And um, we were evaluated by an organisation called Epic Consultants. And they have experience in the mental health and the prison system. Oh, really? The judicial system, yeah. And, you know, I got I got quite close to one of the women who was working there and she was just describing some of the stuff that she goes through on a daily basis, really. And I was very interested to talk to her about some of the themes, because some of the themes kind of overlap with disability, although she's not a disabled person herself. So, you know, a lot of the stigma that that as a as a person who's been in prison or in the mental health system a lot of stigma that you carry with you and that is directed towards you from the broader society 
is something that is really hard to deal with and get over and get through. And that must be something that you deal with a lot with people who are out in the community. But like you say, in the COVID, people have basically felt like they were locked up again. Mm-hmm. And the social stigma of coming through that and and being judged by other people around you. Well, the labelling process in itself around mental health has severely impacted on people. But, I mean, and, yeah, the women we work with are viewed, are viewed as mad, bad women, basically. You know, um, and it, it's very difficult to get a lot of funders and not at all uh, sensitive to, you know, our cause or... Um, and yeah, women, yeah, they're in denial. They, or they want to be in denial. They want to be, it to be shut away. It, you know, they see it as a weakness. Whereas actually, if you look at the women that we work with and, um, you know, the experiences they've had and, you know, how they've come through and dealt with it, you know, they're really strong women. If given the opportunity, you know, the best type of support you know, they would they definitely be able to work through what's happened to them. And, you know, what we want is that women are not just treading water. We want them to swim and we want them to have goals and aspirations. And so our Community Link project, which we've just reviewed, um, is about enabling women to have the intensive emotional and practical support they need when leaving prison or hospital. We've got a trauma-informed counselling service because often women, you know, are re-triggered through their lives by not dealing or not being able to work through what's happened to them in earlier years. And then also we're just piloting a coaching service. Um, And so we're looking at how, you know, enabling women to have aspirations, goals, to see themselves as, you know, having a life, a good life, you know, rather than just like surviving. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, all that's kind of the stigma stuff, but there's a, there's a whole load of other stuff as well around disclosure. So at what point in a relationship, for example, or in a, you know, if you're being employed, do you, is it, do you feel safe enough to be able to disclose your past in, you know what I mean? The kind mm. of the, the, the systems that you've been through in many ways, that must be something that you work with. Cause you know, for a lot of disabled people, you know, for the job application form, you have to tick a box to describe if you're a disabled person or not. And a lot of disabled people don't tick that box. No, no, no. They say that, you know, what will automatically happen is you'll just be put on the no pile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they leave and that, it. Especially wait. mental health. Yeah, no. they wait till they get to the job interview when they then might disclose it at that point. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it is difficult and it's hidden away, isn't it? It's a stigma. It, people don't talk about it. It's... um. Yeah, and I mean, of course, the other thing is that women who've experienced abuse in childhood and other disadvantage will often be drawn to abusive relationships, and that's the whole area of domestic violence, which, I mean, we're not a specialist organisation in that, but obviously many of the women we work with have and do experience uh, domestic violence. You're going to edit this, aren't you? Um, so, well, we we don't necessarily cut things out unless 
I mean, we won't talk about names or anything. We won't disclose anything like that. Okay. But it will, it will, it will go out basically like like this. Okay. Um, and so, in terms of um, the kinds of places that you work with, how how many are there? How many? I don't know how many prisons there are full stop in the UK, and how many women's prisons there are. Um, I think there's twelve women's prisons, and we don't. We are just. We did work at Bronzefield. Uh, we had a contract to work there, but then that was uh, replaced, and we're now just um, starting the process of working three women, three prisons in the southeast: Downview, Bronzefield, and Sens. So that's a process that we're going to try. We're trying to pick up from that, but we still have links with prisons and uh, women in prison um, in different in different prisons. So you have women, and you say there are a lot of the other prisons are mixed prisons, still. Uh, no, they're all uh, all they're all prison. Uh, they're separate prisons, in male and female estate prisons. Yeah. Right. Uh, but the hospitals are uh, cater for men and women. They just have separate units. So often in a hospital, you know, that there will be a very small contingent of women. And so the services that you provide, you provide community services and you provide, I guess, one-to-one -one advocacy services, I think I saw on the website. What, what, yeah. other, what other services do you provide? Why would somebody get in contact with you? What would, what would they contact you for? Well, the services we provide in the community are um, primarily in London and South East. Um, and then the... Um, so the hospitals, we were, we're working with three hospitals in the Midlands middle and, middle and the North at the moment. Um, we also provide training uh, for professionals around gender and mental health. We provide that to uh, multidisciplinary teams in um, forensic units. And also we're getting a lot of requests now for employers to provide some you know, generic training information from uh, for women um, in employment in their organisation. So that's something that we're looking at as well. And we do consultancy as well. We're doing some consultancy for uh, Inclusion London at the moment um, around their, one of their uh, campaigning projects. Um, and also, um, you know, obviously we, we, were, we were born as a, a campaigning organisation, and we were really successful. And in fact, we it, it was from two research reports which we um, we produced in 2000 and in uh, 1999. One is um, defining gender issues, redefining women's services, and the other is good girls survive, surviving the secure system. And that was really the first time that gender was, you know, put on the agenda as a differentiating factor in mental health and, you know, how the causes of women's mental health and, you know, the, um, the, the different support and treatments that might be appropriate um, are different than for men. Um, so, yeah, so we were pioneering, but like a lot of small organisations, we... You can never take advantage of it, really, because you haven't got the money or, you know, you haven't got the capacity, the core capacity. Um, so we have 
you know, we have been very active in campaigning and we want to get back to that now. And we've just got funding through the Trust for London um, Disability Justice Fund, which is absolutely fantastic news. And that's around, uh, part of it's around building diversity and inclusion into WISH, you know, making that more robust aspect of WISH. It's about reviewing our membership offer and making sure our members are for what we do. Um, but also there's, um, we want to, to carry out research with women who are now in the community, but who have been in forensic units to look at what their experiences were, how things can change, you know, what moving into the community meant and the support that they had there and to develop a campaign around that. I mean, ideally, our aim, actually, it's a three-year project, is to be able to go directly into secure units and talk with women about their experiences. But it's very hard getting, you know, gaining access. It's very restricted gaining access to those environments. And so do you work with, so you mentioned Inclusion London. Do you work with other disabled people's organisations like elsewhere in the country? Um, yeah, we have we have had partnerships with different people. We've worked with Ensign. We work people first. Um, so we've got close relationships with a number of organisations. Yeah, um, yeah. But obviously, I mean, it's great working in partnership, but that adds an element of capacity need to your organisation as well. And we're literally, you know, about six full time equivalent staff at which we do. We're absolutely great value for money. Um, but of course. Charitable trust funders don't see, see us like that, you know, jumping through all the hoops. It's like absolutely no understanding that one person is responsible for every department. If we're in an organisation, a bigger organisation, you just have, you know, cast of thousands. So there's no understanding of that. But I've got to say that the interview and the process with Trust for London was absolutely amazing. You know, they complete, obviously, they completely get it. And, you know, sort of, so that, you know, that's reassuring. Um, but we, we find it difficult in COVID, you know, the emergency grants, we were the target group, mental health, blah, blah, blah. yeah, we got quite a bit of funding, but it was all had to be spent at the end of the year. Um, so, it, you know, that's ridiculous. Um, and then after COVID, an absolute drought of funding. And what we've done is we've built up our uh, donor fundraising capacity and that has been incredible support of course now with the cost of living crisis that is going to be you know not as abundant as it has been yeah yeah and a lot of people you work with they just everything just must must all just tie in so I mean not only have we come through but first of all we had all the austerity and then they come out of that and we go into COVID and we come out of that and we go into the cost of living crisis. And if you're already dealing with mental health issues and you come out of a system and for the first time you might find yourself living in the community, then it's going to be really tough. Yeah, it is tough. And it's not, I mean, what thing, what, in a way, what COVID did was help build communities to a certain extent, which, I mean, me personally, community is the basis good supportive community and collective action and support is the basis of survival basically if you've got that in place then it's very solid you know you might have friends and family but that changes and 
you know, people go through different challenges in those relationships. But for me, communities, you know, a solid basis on which to build. Um, so I think that did happen in, in COVID, yeah. Uh, but it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to make contact. And especially if you're, you know, sort of a lot of people are agoraphobic or anxious, so they're not going to reach out to try and make friends and go places. You know, it's like, you know, it's very challenging for people. And a lot of people, I guess a lot of people that you need to reach are the people who will, are least likely to try to reach you. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we try to make links in the prison so that women can, you know, sort of come to our service at that point. And so actually, we've got a great um, comms manager, and our, which is great, but it means that our name is going far and wide and we're getting... As I said, a lot of referrals from women, you know, all over the country and other bigger organisations referring women to us. So I think organisations are all in the same bench, aren't they, really? Yeah. But I saw on your website as well that you have an online community. So people who perhaps can't come to you, can they contact you online? Have you got some sort of online forum or something? Or... Um, no, we haven't. We've got... Um, We've got our um, a, a sort of um, a, yeah support community, not online as such, but via email and you know Mailchimp and. But some of, many of our members are in prison or hospital, so we don't have access to that. So we also have you know paper versions of things, and we're just about to do a consultation with members now about you know how we can we you know what we should do in reviewing the. Uh, membership offer um, and consultation is really important just before just before it's all before or after covid isn't it now um so just before covid we'd done a consultation with our members about the areas they wanted us to take forward and the first was gender uh, trauma-informed counseling and that has been hugely successful we're collecting evidence of impact so that we can campaign for this service to be available to women because you know there's nothing we count when you think well when I think of all the people I know who have counseling who've I'm not saying and everybody's life's a challenge but you know if anybody would benefit many of the women we work with would benefit but not like six weeks or you know a, a, digi a, a digital course or something it's like we do up to a year's free counseling for women and um, in Tower Hamlets, and we've got a link with Social Prescriber at one of the local uh, GPs at the Mission Practice, so that's worked very well. So we want to collect that evidence and maybe and develop a campaign to demonstrate the difference it can make to women to, you know, demand on services and other aspects. Um, and then the other thing that women wanted to take forward for us to campaign on was in hospitals and prisons, you know, if uh, women are on observations, then they have to be observed. And often it's a man walking up and down the corridor at night, opening the little latch, looking in. And that is the most, you know, obviously a really traumatic experience for women. And it's absolutely not rocket science that it would be, is it, really? Yeah. You know, given that women, given women's experience. But, yeah. Um, so we, we need to review you know, 
looking at taking that forward. And some of the organisations that I've spoken to who offer very specialist service, like the kinds of services that you offer, they also offer training to disabled people's organisations so that organisations around the country can work with people who come through their doors. Do you offer that kind of training as well? No, we don't, but we are developing some training and I think I'm going to put that on my list. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, it just occurs to me that if somebody walks through the door down here in Disability Cornwall, for example, then you know, we might not automatically refer them to you, but it might be something that we could we could work with that person and help them in a, in a way that we were trained to do if there were such training sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're all just focused on our own survival, really, aren't we? You yeah. know, sort of, um, but I think that's a great, you know, that would be a great offer. It's been very nice talking to you. What um what have we not talked about that 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 you should have that I should have talked about or you should have talked about? You anything else that you think we've missed out? Um I don't think there is really. Um I suppose the one thing that um also brings us joy is that when women, you know, we work with women, they're in a better place. They always want to give back to us. And that's such an empowering, you know, thing. You know, it's all, you know, it's like people who are giving us, you know, have it and people who are receiving, you know, are on the other end and there's not that status. But obviously without a receiver, you can't have a giver. And, you know, women, they volunteer for us. They fundraise. They um, support us in a number of ways. And that is absolutely, you know, a great accolade that, they come back into the organisation and they're part of WISH in a different in a different way. And, you know, that's great. It's, great something that it's something I'm very interested in. It's that idea that for a lot of disabled people, um, including people with mental health issues, a lot, a lot of the time they have very few opportunities to give back that sort of reciprocality. <laughs> So, you know, it's always like they, people get given benefits or they get given exactly. this. Yeah, yeah. Very little chance for them to give something back to feel part of a community. And I think that giving back is where you started the whole conversation about community about, you know, three quarters of an hour ago. I think that sense of community really does get stronger if there is a sense of reciprocality within it so that people are giving as well as taking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, there's a a great sense of um, equality within the organisation, staff, volunteers, and the women, you know, I mean, we haven't, women used to drop into the office and we'd have, you know, community space, and we haven't got that back yet um, fully. But, you know, if you come into your to our office, it's, you know, our community link office, it's just like coming into somebody's living room great <laughs> there's a whole different energy there you know and and women really value that yeah 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 well brilliant thank you very much for your time it's been very nice talking to you uh, i can see the sun's coming through your windows like it is through mine so yeah. <laughs> i hope you have a very happy and lovely summer thank you very much Theo. thank you it's been lovely talking i was a bit I mean, I don't do this. I'm not a front of house person, so I don't do this sort of thing very often, but I do love talking about which. So thank you. Mm. Great. Thanks for your insights.